The systematic and widespread dismissal of black educators from our public schools was one of the most devastating things to happen in the wake of the Brown decision. It's also one of the least remembered by folks that look like me. It's easy to forget that when we look at our educator demographics today, that our profession wasn't always dominated by white people. And as we've learned in our prior episodes here, desegregation most often occurred both then and now at the pace of white comfort. After all, it was black schools that were closed or demoted. It was black kids who were disproportionately bussed across town, and it was a significant number of black teachers and principals that got the pink slip in the years that followed. Desegregation cost more than 40,000 African-American teachers and school leaders their jobs throughout the country. To learn more about that, there is an outstanding new book called Jim Crow's Pink Slip by Dr. Leslie Fenwick, which documents that history in staggering detail. But there have always been people and organizations right here in North Carolina that have refused to accept the rules of a rigged game. They fought back, resisted, and worked to manifest something better than business as usual. Profound Ladies is one such organization today, and their mission is simple, to recruit and retain black indigenous women of color and equip them with the mentorship, leadership, and career development pathways necessary for them to succeed, grow, and thrive. Which brings me to our next few episodes. I, I know, it's been a while. I'm excited to actually step aside and have my friend Kiana Dubeshi take over the podcast for our next few installments. Kiana is the executive director of Profound Ladies, and she will share some conversations she had last spring for the Profound Ladies Equity Pledge series. One of the most frequent questions we hear from folks that are interested in doing the work in their own communities is, how can they get started? I hope this series from Kiana offers a few suggestions about how you can plug into organizations and efforts that are already underway. You'll hear from Dr. Jerry Wilson of Creed, the Center for Racial Equity in Education, Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, founder and executive director of We Are, which stands for Working to Extend Anti-Racist Education, and Kiana even interviewed me, which I'll share with you at the end of the series. I hope you enjoy this slightly different conversational format for the next few episodes, and I look forward to learning alongside you so we can better understand how we got here and what we can do to close the gap between our values and our actions. Kiana, welcome. Oh, okay, thank you, Michael. My name is Kiana Debeshi. I am originally from Niagara Falls, New York. I'm the first in my family to, to leave um, Niagara Falls, so at least four generations that um, are still there on the American side. And who do I come from? I come from a strong, bad woman. Her name is Daphne Cheney. Um, our, our maiden names are Hill. And um, my father's name is Reginald McCrary. Too much to unpack there. I know, because I saw your eyebrows were like, okay, well, and moving on. Um, but I really feel like I come from my grandfather, who we affectionately called Pop. And um, Pop, I am the person I am today because of because of Pop. And so um, his name is Ulysses Hill. And, and I carry the legacy of his um, vision, of everything that he believed in and, and my success I attribute to him. My name is Kiana Debeshi and this is The Way Out is Back Through, Lessons on Place, Context, and School Leadership.
So welcome, Jerry. I'm so excited to connect with you and learn more about your work, but also to help our broader community understand the work that you all are leading and how it can be a part of this equity pledge that they are committing to um, in hopes of creating a better future for all students in North Carolina. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, who are you and brought what brought you to this work? All right. Uh, thank you for giving us this opportunity. Um, we're really excited. Uh, so I'm, I'm Jerry Wilson. I am the Director of Policy and Advocacy at CREED, the Center for Racial Equity in Education. Um, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, born and raised in Queen City. And um, I came to this work as a result of my own experiences and traumas in school. Um, I can remember the exact moment that I stopped liking school. I was in fourth grade when uh, my teacher would embarrass me in front of the class for not doing my homework. and. Um, I remember becoming a class clown um, because that was my way of connecting with my peers and finding my lane since I, I couldn't be considered one of the smart kids because that's not how my teachers saw me. So I was going to be the funny kid. Um, and I was the funny kid up until high school, the last couple of years of high school where I started to take uh, schoolwork seriously and think about education as, as an opportunity to address issues and problems that I cared about. and stuck with it. And that's what brought me into this work. Uh, you know, 2023's theme, every year there's a theme for Black History Month. And this theme is the year of Black resistance. And I can even hear, even in, in that little body as a, as a fourth grader, the resistance that you were pushing against around people putting narratives on you and how frequently our kids have to do that every day. Mm -hmm. And they don't have language for it. Um, and But now that we're in equity spaces, we understand what Black resistance looks like. And I just want to know from your perspective, like, what are you seeing in the state of our work and our own communities? What progress have you witnessed and where do we still have a ways to go? Well, I think that, you know, there's been tons of progress because there are organizations and leaders who are passionate about these issues and who are fighting every single day to improve educational outcomes and experiences for uh, black and brown students. Um, I think that, you know, some of the things that we've done at Creed, like our teaching in color series, which is focused on black educators and Latinx educators and native educators and Asian educators, and really just raising the awareness that teachers are a profound influence on students' educations, yes. right? Um, a teacher can make or break your your time in school. Um, so part of the progress that we see comes from educators of color uh, stepping up and doing the work and holding down students of color in the classroom despite policies that still uh, marginalize students of color, uh, despite colleagues and coworkers who don't get it and who continue to marginalize and push out students of color. Um, so we, we see progress as a result of leaders and organizations like Profound Ladies who are doing the work and supporting the educators who are in the, the best position uh, to do the work. Yeah. And so, so much of that came from, you talked about your lived experience, my own lived experience as an educator, and I didn't have a Profound Ladies. And I spent 10 years in the classroom before 
I mean, that system will chew you up and spit you out the same way that it does mm-hmm. for our kids. And so understanding that, like, while you are doing really profound work with kids, like there's that hard work costs something and it, and it costs you something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's your humanity, your peace, um, your your mental health. And, and this, this was language that we were not using. Like, I'm old school. We were not using this language and nobody cared about it. This was this was the era of like just data and gains and and um and all things related to no child left behind that really left behind educators of color. And so yeah. I do think that we've come a long way in that like there's this this stigma that is removed um, from this, this, you know, culture of productivity. Like you don't have to be, I, I used to come in early, be the last one to leave. I was so proud that I had my little dog in a corner because I would be at school at 11 o'clock at night and and I would get rewarded for it. And And none of that really felt good Right. Mm-hmm. But there was this system of rewards that started to condition me to like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. We are we are so far away from that. And, I, and I'm grateful because I think that in some ways it should make it should make the profession um, create some sustainability and longevity, if you will, except that like then racism continues to shift. And so now here we are talking about professionals being uh, silenced and um, their materials and curriculum being curated for them. And I know that you all are thinking a lot about this, even with the last um, statement that you all pull out, put out around some of this this policy and legislation that has happened in Florida. Can you can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. So um, so we put out a statement at the start of Black History Month, and it was really just recognizing the importance of Black history and the need for all children to know and understand Black history and to learn that in public schools. Um, and you know, it was it was in part a response to what happened in Florida with them rejecting the AP um, African American History course. But like largely, we've seen an attack on honest history. And when folks use that term, quote unquote, woke, uh, what they really mean is the histories of Black and Brown people and marginalized folks in this country. So now the cat is out of the bag, though, right? Like the the mask is off. Uh, it's no longer opposition to CRT and to wokeness, right? Now folks are saying it with their chest that they are opposed to students learning about Black history, which has been the case all along, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's as awful as that is, uh, at least we can have an an honest dialogue and discourse about that now and call folks out uh, about what they've actually been doing for the last few years. Mm -hmm. Um, So from our perspective, we put out the statement and it's call it's a call to action for lawmakers and policymakers to submit um, the requirement for students in public schools in North Carolina to learn Black history in schools because it is absolutely important. And for our state in particular, right, we have a rich, rich legacy um, when it comes to African American history in North Carolina. We produce some absolute powerhouses, right? Um, Leaders of the movement, the NC-10, right? We have the most four-year historically Black colleges and universities in the country in North Carolina, and they have made monumental contributions to Black culture and to the, the, really, the the United States uh, in general, right? Like, if you look back and see who's producing Black engineers, Black lawyers, Black doctors, right? Black judges, black educators. Um, HBCUs have done a majority of that work and continue to do that work uh, today. So, what we're hoping for is to is to um, have lawmakers 
pass legislation guaranteeing that students who go through North Carolina public schools will learn Black history. Uh, and that's important for everybody, but especially for Black students. It is. It is. And so much of that Black history, right, is like our present day history. So I really have appreciated even your human capital policy that you all put out, because even historically, we do not talk about why are we addressing teacher diversity? Well, it's the fallout in the attempted integration, if we were going to call it that, of 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education. Black teachers were actually pushed out, fired, leaders, Mm -hmm. superintendents on purpose, like at a time when white people, they're not going to let their children read about Black history, they're most certainly not going to let a Black educator lead that classroom. So intent was put behind pushing our teachers out. There has to be intent around bringing them back in. And yet here we are in 2023 with 80% of our teachers still not being a reflection and a representation of our our student population. And we see the ramifications of that. And we see the fallout of that and and the implications and what it means for kids. And I know that you all have done so much work around addressing that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that policy? Yeah. So um, we uh, put out a policy brief back in 2021 uh, that looked specifically, like you mentioned, at human capital, looking at the impact of educators of color. There's a study that uh, one of my professors at UNC Chapel Hill, Dr. Constance Lindsay, uh, conducted, which had a a statistic that's been cited very, very often. And what it says is basically that um, if for Black boys, if they have a Black teacher between grades three and five, the likelihood of them dropping out is reduced by a third. Having a single Black teacher between grades three and five for Black boys, the likelihood of them dropping out is reduced by a third, right? That is just mind-blowing. Right. Um, And, you know, when you start to think about what that means, right. And who benefits from small, small investments in us looking at the educator workforce and saying, okay, (laughs) it is overwhelmingly white right now and continues to be, even though the public school population in terms of student demographics is, you know, now majority students of color and increasingly so, if we think about um, how many students stand to benefit from us increasing educator diversity and representation um, and how, like, leaps and bounds, you know, in terms of improvement, in terms of student experiences and outcomes are possible by this investment in educators of color and supporting educators of color who are currently in the classroom and attracting new educators of color into the classroom to reverse some of that damage done by past policies and histories like the implementation of uh, Brown v. Board of Education. Um, It really is outstanding. So we've called on policymakers to do that. We've called on local uh, school districts to pass teacher diversity policies. We've called on um, the Department of Public Instruction and policymakers at the state level to start doing serious research around the experiences of educators of color who are in the classroom now, right? So that we can find out what are the reasons why these educators are are feeling overburdened, right? And underappreciated. What specific policies and practices can we change so that folks no longer feel that way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Those are some of the things that we've started to do through teaching in color, but also our policy briefs. 
Yes. And that work is so important. I really appreciate, again, you all taking the leadership and doing that. You talked about specific outcomes with kids and that graduation rate absolutely matters. And we mentioned at the top of the call, that SEL component and how people feel this level of psychological safety in, in school. I never had an educator of color until I was mm. junior in college. And it was wow. my, I know my sociology teacher, I went to a PWI and a, a lot of reason why I went to a PWI is I never knew what an HBCU was. Um, and so that that was like another missed opportunity. I only remember seeing um, one um, black teacher and I wanted him in the fourth grade because every Thanksgiving he had like this amazing soul food <laughs> dinner. Um, and I just never understood why I didn't get Mr. Williams. So he was the one opportunity that I had. I didn't get him. And so then I never I never had a, a teacher of color. Um, but what I will say is like the ongoing microaggressions besides the bigger outcomes that absolutely are a part of, you know, if you will, like this social mobility that kids have the opportunity um, to participate in because of where capitalism is now. And like, yeah. it's it's a, it's a working class, but also it's like a college degree that gives that opportunity and that door is shut on kids early on. And if we are, if absent of those outcomes, just the everyday experiences and interactions with, with teachers. I remember because I didn't have a teacher of color, my hair being an issue, um, my name mm-hmm. being an issue and and how humiliating it is, you know, these these microaggressions that happen that maybe if I had a teacher of color, I wouldn't have to experience the ongoing mispronunciation of my name or like every time the roster being called like the pause that comes in and then everybody turning to look because they knew they had come to my name. Now, Kiana is a, a very common name now and I'm grateful, but it wasn't common in 1980. Um, mm-hmm. And then you're thinking about things like the Crown Act and 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 then the way that like bodies are over police with policies that are written into student handbooks. Maybe if we had more teachers of color who wore their hair like mine, who who had the same body types, we might not actually put these things into a handbook that then can be penalized and or disciplined. And those practices leading to push out. So there are just so many reasons why teacher diversity shouldn't even be the bar. But here we are. <laughs> Right, right. And, you know, it's amazing, right? Like, just as human beings, we naturally, especially folks in in the dominant group, we tend to norm our ideal, you know, type after ourselves, right? So for students in the classroom, well, if teachers are overwhelmingly white women, you look at student demographics who tend to do the best in public schools and schools, oftentimes it's, it's white girls. Why? Because the educators can see themselves in those students, right? So what that means is the more we diversify the teacher workforce, the more students of color will be humanized in the eyes of the people in the front of the classroom who are responsible for guiding them and helping to mold their minds and prepare them for the world, to take on this this grand responsibility uh, that they will inherit one day. Um, so I think, I think that that's... To put it in simple terms, like that's, it's just a very basic element of human nature, right? That we just don't tend to operate on. Like we, the same thing in the workforce, right? The managers and the folks who are in the positions of power in the workforce are typically white men. So everyone else who doesn't fit into that mold is ostracized, marginalized, pushed to the side to the point where we have to have legislation for folks to be able to wear their hair the way it grows out of their scalp. I know. Right? Yeah. That's wild. Wild. <laughs> it's wild. It is wild. And and the violence that comes, right, with, like, 
if you were to conform, like what that means, mm-hmm. what that costs you. I recently read an article, this is totally off topic, but I read an article that talked about like uterine fibroids in black women. Mm-hmm. And like, I've always known just from experience and family um, background that like a lot of women experience that. Do you know that they linked it to hair relaxers? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And so that chemical contributing to, which contributes to the higher rates of miscarriages. And so when we're, mm. we're talking about, so when we're talking about maternal health and like the disparities, they're like, it's all connected. And where did that violence come from? That conformity? Well, because somebody told you that you couldn't wear your hair a certain way. And so we came out with our press and combs and when we could get better, we came out with relaxers such that we fit the European standards of beauty so that we could exist. And now mm-hmm. look at what it's costing our bodies. Um, mm-hmm. Just that was, that was really profound to me. Um, in a way that I just, I'm still trying to wrap my head around because that just came out. But I'm just like, I don't know a person that didn't get a perm. I'm caught in front of the time, didn't get relaxing. I have four older sisters, you know, just for me, it was all around the house, you know. I remember commercials and the jingles and all of it. And yeah. it, it is, it's so pervasive, right? Uh, because that was the expectation that we depart from our natural selves to try to conform. Um, and we still see that today. In the classroom, um, both on the student side of things, but also with educators as well. Yeah. And yet this Black resistance, even as a part of this year's theme, is nothing new. We are used to being a resilient people. We literally are the seeds that were attempted to be buried. And so what do you think are some of the real and perceived barriers that are contributing to our forward progress now and in the future? Yeah, I think... um, Definitely, there is a concerted effort uh, by folks who oppose racial equity, by folks who oppose um, students and educators of color being their full selves and whole selves in the classroom. And they are going all out. They're pulling out all the stops, right? Because I think they understand that we are powerful, right? And the narrative is beginning to shift to where folks understand that all these perceived limitations and barriers are in fact imposed. And (laughs) there are policies at play passed by individuals and groups of people in power. And that it's, it's it's not a law of nature, right? Everything that we have come to accept as the way things are and should be in schools, uh, folks are beginning to question that, right? Because it's not working out for lots of different people, not just students of color. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that that is absolutely a threat. And as this mixes with the political dialogue about the 2024 election, and we see folks who are intentionally adopting racist policies to try to get headlines and attention to advance a political career, you know, it's really going to get even more wild, right? Because at this point it's, it's, it's a race to the bottom. Yeah. Like cruelty is the point to be as cruel and as unusual as you can be to try to attract um, likes and followers, right? Uh, to convert that into political cachet um, to seek a higher office. So right now that is a huge threat. Um, and I'm hopeful that folks with good sense will be able to see through some of these tactics. Um, I'm hopeful that communities of color and Organizations like Profound Ladies and Creed and the rest of the Freedom Hill Coalition can come together and mount uh, 
a campaign to get folks to come to their senses, right? And to uplift the importance and the necessity uh, of us acknowledging and supporting the wholeness of students of color and educators of color in schools. Yeah, yeah, I so appreciate that. So tell us, why are you why are you taking the equity pledge? What does it mean to you? We talked a little bit about critical hope. That's that's where I'm putting my, my eggs. <laughs> but what does it mean to you to take the equity pledge? You know, I think it's it's vital that we find um, ways to move forward in this work. You know, I think that to be in it day in and day out. Uh, and to be grinding and to look at the political prospects, right, and see what's going on in Raleigh and see what's going on in Washington. It's easy to get discouraged and say, you know, it's not looking too good for us. <laughs> but, you know, right. <laughs> right, you know, but that the equity plan is absolutely necessary in order to keep that momentum and keep moving forward and to be reminded that there are lots of folks um, who believe in racial equity in schools who believe in the power and the necessity of educators of color and who are willing to act on those beliefs uh, to advance this work forward. Yeah, I'm literally over here. I'm like fighting back tears, but I just really appreciate y'all. And I mean, we're sharing your work as a part of the series because there's no way that anybody should be in classrooms without having knowledge of the work that you're doing. And it's robust. Um, And so I want to make sure that people know about the work that you are leading um, organizations, people who are leading diversity work, who say they want to lead diversity work, people change their squares black in 2020, come back to some of the work um, that you all are doing and put put your money where your mouth is, really. We we need tangible actions. And y'all are y'all are leading right. the way. We are so honored to be a part of the Freedom Hill Coalition. This work has many lanes. And so we know that we, we can't do it alone. And if you go alone, you go slow. And so I'm excited that we have we have the space to do it with you all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jerry, for your time today. Thank you. All right, that's it for this episode. I'm so excited to share more about my conversations with you all. All the resources mentioned today will be posted on both the Profound Ladies website and thewayoutisbackthrough.org. Thank you again to Dr. Jerry Wilson and to Creed. For the next time, I get to talk with Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock the lead curator and executive director of We Are, which stands for Working to Extend Anti-Racist Education. I cannot wait to share that with you all. Music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions and the theme song Mirrors is by Joseph McDade.